Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Catholic Talk Show. we got a great show for you today. We're going to be looking at the 12 astounding facts about the Shroud of Turin today. Yeah, we're going to get into the science. We're going to get into the history. And we're going to really dig into just amazing things that lend credence to the fact that the Shroud of Turin is the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ himself. Think about that. A linen 2,000 years ago with the imprint of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Powerful. Amazing. Man, great to be back in the studio with you guys. Uh, as always, we have Father Rich Pagano. What up? And Ryan Shield. Ryan, Father. Ryan, Rich. Ryan. Right. What a phenomenal day today. It's gorgeous. We're here at the Cast Media Studios in L.A. and Hollywood, and it's a just gorgeous, gorgeous day. It's been fun to produce these things with you, and it's good to be back. Yeah, we got a really cool show today. Um, yeah, this is an episode that our listeners have really been asking for. Right. This is the number one most requested episode of the Catholic Talk Show that when we ask, they say, let's let's really get into the Shroud of Trend. The Shroud of Turin is without doubt the most fascinating single object probably on the face of the earth. It's the most famous and most mind-boggling relic because it really shows, if it is true, that it is an actual artifact of the most important moment in in all of creation and all of history. Mm. And it is uh, an, a testament to everything that God's plan for human beings uh, in its fulfillment. And it is captured in one image yeah. that is so powerful it yeah. really is and the and the more you know time that's gone by the more studies that's been done the more amazing things that we find out about it that um just kind of drive you into this all wonder and awe in, you know? in the spirit of of that same wonder and awe you know i i think of the image of our lady of guadalupe both the the shroud and the image of our lady of guadalupe just develop such a fascination so i've really been looking forward to this show in specific and really looking at each of these astounding you know facts about the shroud and they're truly it's amazing so let's uh let's go into it man yeah. so a little backstory on the shroud of trend uh, everyone probably knows what the Shroud of Turin, but actually the the historical provenance of the Shroud of Turin is probably something that most people don't really realize. Now, the Shroud of Turin first entered into the historical record in the uh, mid-14th century, around 1350, in the possession of a French knight and nobleman named Geoffrey de Charnay. Now, Geoffrey de Charnay was a a very wealthy and well-to-do knight, and this is not too long after the Crusades. And most uh, shroud historians and, and um, would say that the Shroud of Turin found its way into Western history after the sack of Constantinople. So that it was likely that this was one of the relics that was in maybe the Hagia Sophia or one of the Constantinople shrines, because they really maybe, did have... Yeah, maybe something that Helena, St. Helena right. probably... Brought sourced. back, yeah, yeah, and brought back to her son city, right? Yeah, you're going to see that with if you look at relics. There is after the Crusades, there's a huge boom in relics because when they sacked Constantinople, they took all of these back, and Constantinople really was where most of the major relics mm-hmm. of our Lord's life and the early saints were at. So it appears in the historical record right around 1350s. Um, 
it was then bought by the House of Savoy. The House of Savoy was like a, a royal dynasty that would eventually lead to a lot of the kings and rulers of Italy. Um, and then it ultimately found its way into the cathedral in the Italian, the northern Italian city of Torino, Turin. And that's why it's now known as the Shroud of Turin. So it has a little bit of a meandering history, likely from Byzantine, uh, the Byzantine Constantinople, and then into France and ultimately into northern Italy. Recently, it seems to have gotten more... I mean, like in the last 40 or 50 years. It's, well, well, I think there was there was two displays like they they actually revealed the shroud and they unveiled it because it's like in a lockbox in Turin and St. John the Baptist. Like they they never bring this out. And it's a great treasure, you know, and it's been analyzed and scientifically evaluated. But they they hold it up for display, you know, every now and then on very special occasions. And back in 2000, and I think it was like 2014. Yeah, maybe it's been displayed four times in the last. And like it draws years. millions what? of people, like millions what? of people have gone to see. And people wait in line for 24 to 40 hours just to walk past it for 30 I seconds. Would. Yeah, I, would I would too. Why? Man. Why? Why? Why do they? Why don't they, sh why isn't like, you know, like Our Lady of Guadalupe, I mean, she's up there in mm -hmm. the shrine. Mm -hmm. It's more delicate. It's, uh, they don't have a great display system. The security just isn't the same. So it's just, it's really a function of preservation. I think Ital and the, and Italians have something to do with it too. Yeah. <laughs> just put it back it's in probably, the box. Yeah, but <laughs> it's going to get in the pizza. It also gives that scarcity so that when it does come out, it really is a, a very extraordinary event in generations it's a, it's like a once a, it's a generational thing to sit get that opportunity mm -hmm. it's like the holy doors you know you yes. think of when the the doors in in rome at the vatican are open it's a significant thing you know when the you know remains of Pierre Giorgio Frassati, for example, for a World Youth Day, or John Paul II himself for, for a World Youth Day, you know, they bring the relics and they, they, you know, allow people to venerate. It just marks something significant. Yeah. Even the use of incense in the liturgy, it's, you know, it's so that it's a significant thing. So it's a yeah. significant ce celebration of a solemnity. Why not use some incense and do some more, you know, like, it, so yeah. I, I look at the way that it's, it's been unveiled and it's been shown you know, it kind of creates an anticipation. Yeah. What's that uh, in Oberauwengau? I can never say that a town, but the passion they do like Oberauwengau or something like that. And no, you, you two, uh, you two, uh, gold chain wearing fools are going to know Italian towns <laughs> better than me. <laughs> but they, you know, they, every 10 years they do a passion play, you know, in the whole, in the, in this, in town, yeah. in this town. And, um, you know, it's it's such an awesome experience culturally, and people anticipated for ten years yeah. to go see it. You know, so it's cool. So, right. so it appears in the historical record around 1350. Now, before that, there isn't a defined provenance, but besides, they said it probably disappeared from Constantinople in 1204. Now, there's some historical things that you can do to track it back to show that it is around longer than that. Sorry, guys, I was trying to turn my. Um, notifications <laughs> off my phone. And that's I all right. That. Well, that's okay, Ryan. All right. Did you get any good notifications? No, I, w I was just <laughs> turning it off. Jesus uh, just texted him and said, stay on focus, right? <laughs> I was so, doing it for you guys. That's right. So there's a, a codex called the, the Prey Codex or the Hungarian Prey Codex. And this codex was written in the, the very late 12th century, so the 1190s which predates the historical factual 
uh, provenance of the shroud. And in this codex, there's an image that shows the burial cloth of Jesus. And it has very distinct markings on it that no artist would just randomly put in there. It has holes the shape of L's on it, which why would those be on there? Why would they just artistically choose to do that? It also had a very distinct pattern. And these things are exactly um, in accordance with the actual Shroud of Turin, so that no artist would just do that. So it's very likely that this artist in the late 12th century, before the fall of Constantinople, had seen this relic and done done a a, a first in-person drawing of it. Hmm. Now, even going back a little bit further, there was a historian who studied the Shroud of Turin, and his name was Vignon. And he started studying... Byzantine depictions of Jesus after the 5th century. And he found some very bizarre patterns. These patterns of the way that icons of Jesus were drawn had very peculiar, um, distinct ways to to draw Jesus. Well, if it's an icon, actually to write the icon. But things like the left eye was slightly higher than the right eye. There was a uh, a square-shaped marking at the brow of the nose, at the bridge of the nose. There was a forked beard. There was always a few a few strands, three strands of hair at the middle part of the hair. And there's 20 of these different markings, and they're called, after his research, they're known as the Vignon markings. And he found that all of these things were consistent in Byzantine art from the 5th century on, which is in accordance with when it would have, according to the theory, been displayed after St. Helena found it. So the, the theory is that all of these things are also consistent with the Shroud of Turin, so that these sacred icon writers would have known the Shroud of Turin, and in all of their depictions of our Lord, would have put these very idiosyncratic markings into all of their pictures. That, a, they, that they took from the, the Shroud, Shroud of Turin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, and we talked about that on another episode, how artwork uh, began, you, you know, by representing gods of, of Roman culture, mm-hmm. Constantinople, whatever, and and how that developed into the actual, like, face of Christ. Yeah, and, but this one is, these artists would have seen the Shroud of Turin and these peculiarities and would have said, well, this is obviously what Jesus right. looked like, so they copied right. it. And there's no reason they would put a square shape on the brow of the mm-hmm. bridge and three hairs and the left eye larger and a cleft beard. There, and, and if you look at hundreds of Byzantine artwork of that era, they're all consistent. So that helps to prove that. It's one of the things that helps to prove the provenance of the Shroud of Turin back to Constantinople to at least the 5th century. Yeah. Now, one more thing before we get... Was that an astounding fact? Was that one of our... That was astounding. That was pretty it astounding. Is. Mm-hmm. It is. Now, another thing is the Sudarium of Oviedo. Now, the Sudarium of Oviedo. Have you ever heard of this, Padre? No. So it is... Latin, the sudaria means the sweat cloth. Mm-hmm. Now, in scripture, in the Gospel of John, when Peter runs into the tomb and finds the empty tomb, they're very specific. This is a very peculiar thing. They're very specific about what he found in there. And it says, John 26 to 7, when Simon Peter arrived after him, being John, he went in the tomb and saw the burial cloths there. And the cloth that had covered his head, not with the burial cloths, rolled up in a separate place. Two distinct pieces of burial linens. One, the wrappings. The other, the one that had covered his head. That is the sudarium, tradition says. Now, the sudarium has a known provenance all the way back to the 5th century in Spain. Now, why is this important? 
It's important because the sudarium has a known provenance and the markings of the blood are 100% consistent with the markings of the blood of the head of the Shroud of Turin. Same blood type, same cloth type, and the blood markings are like if you put two pieces of clear paper over them, they line up exactly. Hmm. So these are things that help to prove that the Shroud of Turin existed and was known before it appears in the historical record in 13th century France. That's amazing. Yeah. Those are astounding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty darn cool. Yeah. All right. So when you think of the Shroud of Turin, what is the first, how does it, how does it appear in your head? Do you, do you think of the, the dull cloth with a very ghostly image or do you see I, the, I see the ghostly, like I, I see like, the supernatural right. side of, of Christ. So you know. we were talking about how they had displayed it. In 1890s, 1898, I think it was, there was an Italian photographer called Segundo Pio. Now, Segundo Pio, um, and during one of these um, public displays of the Shroud of Turin, went and took, he was given permission to photograph. It was the first time photography had ever been allowed of the Shroud of Turin. And up until this point, it been, had been displayed for hundreds, if not thousands of years. But it was always just this very faint kind of outline, barely there image. But when he developed the film, and the first time it was ever taken, it blew his mind. Because when photographs back at the time, they were produced negatives. And when he was developing the film, the negatives brought the image to life in an insanely distinct way that had never been seen by human eyes before. Very visible. Right. Yeah. It was very... Yeah, it's the one that we see now. Right. I mean, that, that's the image that most people see when they're in the Google machines. In the Google bots. That's you right. know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the... So, and then this really, I think, is the moment where the modern study of the Shroud of Turin takes a turn from just having been a, not a curiosity, but a devotional to the point where people are like, there's something... Miracle. Scientifically yeah. bizarre about this. Because it was a 3D negative image and no one had ever really considered that a medieval forger would have made yeah. a negative 3d image so before that the the veneration of of this cloth of the shroud you don't see that so no. so it's not it's not even present so now this image miraculously comes forth from it you know in this uh in this photograph and now this whole these all these wheels start in motion in modern history to, yeah. to study it. That was the, that was the moment where the, the, the scientific study of it was like, we got to get, we got to look at, we got to dig into this yeah. a little bit more. It's not just, you know, these little Catholic Italian known as going there and like, Oh, no, uh, you put the shroud in the box. Yeah, you, uh, we'll pull it out a little later. <laughs> have you ever, been to, get some have you ever been to Turin, Father? No. No? I, I thought you'd been it's all a, over Italy. I have, but not to Torino. But uh, yeah, is that, love near, to is that near Venice and Trent and all that out of the north? No, no, it's it's in the northeast, northeast, okay. yeah. northeast, yeah. and yeah, that's Venice near. is northwest. Okay, yeah. So amazing, it is amazing. Now, so we get to that, and people start very scientifically studying it, and um, that image opened it up. Now, in the eighties, do you remember this when they did the? Or have you ever heard about this when they let uh, the Vatican allowed scientists to study the Shroud of Turin? I do remember that. And it was big news that the Shroud of Turin was proven to be a hoax because of carbon-14 dating. 
Yeah, which is not even used anymore now, right? I mean, well, carbon fourteen dating is still used. So, and didn't they like evaluate a patch on the on the actual shroud that dated it to like the fourteenth century or something the, like that? Yeah. So they're dating dated it between the twelve eighties and the fourteen sixties. Now, carbon fourteen. How that works is carbon fourteen is a particular molecule of carbon, and it decays at a known rate, and it is it is extant in all living things. So by the rate of the decay, when you study carbon-14, you can say at the moment that it stopped being living or it was harvested or died, carbon-14 starts decaying, and then you just basically reverse back engineering into and get it. back into you that back into the, the age of it. Now, the Shroud of Turin is pretty beat up, right? In the, in the 1500s or so, there's like a, a fire. There was a fire, yeah. and it was kept in a silver reliquary, mm-hmm. and the silver melted and dropped little drops of silver, and it burnt through the Shroud of Turin. So all the little good nuns there who were all so good at sewing patched it up, hmm. right? And they were so good at it, they even, they didn't just sew it on, they grafted they it grafted in. it onto yeah. the weave. So when they did the carbon-14 deities for the Sturt project in the 80s, don't you just wish to have like those Italian nuns in your in your parish in your life in your life? Yeah. You know, I, there was a there was a all there was a altar cloth and a um and a what's it called an alb that was mm. made out of pure linen and it was just one piece of uh, you know cloth and that was actually what I celebrated my first mass with and it was prepared by the sisters um, and then distributed by Archbishop Hurley like sixty years ago or whatever. And, um, but linen's just such an impressive, uh, you know, fabric, fabric. Yeah. It's you the know, fabric it's, of our lives. And it's the fabric, <laughs> it's the fabric of, you know, <laughs> Jesus's burial cloth, you know, like that, yeah. that's just fascinating to me that it was almost mandated for many years that like, that's what a priest would wear. It would be a linen alb and it's a baptismal garment. That's what, why priests wear it. But the, the sense of, you know, what that means in relationship to, you know, the shroud of Turin and, and the shroud, the burial cloths of Jesus and how we were called to die to ourselves. Yeah. It's a it's a neat little connection. Yeah. Yeah. So when they when they analyzed it, these sweet little nuns had fixed up the shroud. And when they pulled the fibers from it to do the carbon 14 dating, they had pulled the fibers from where these nuns had fixed it. Hmm. And obviously those fibers would have come from that time period, which would have thrown off the carbon 14 dating. Because you can't just go chopping up the shroud in the middle, so you take it from the edges. Well, the edges were the damaged area. So that threw into doubt the veracity of the carbon-14 dating. Now, in 2013, they did another study using more advanced techniques that had developed, and that's called uh, spectroscopy. Now, spectroscopy... um, Sounds like something they do for surgery. (laughs) Spectroscopy? Spectroscopy. You know what you need? You need a spectroscopy, son. (laughs) Yeah, son, you you done tore up your knee. We're gonna do a spectroscopy of <laughs> your knee on your face. On your face. <laughs> <laughs> so spectroscopy it, it 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 analyzes the interaction with electromagnetic radiation. Okay, and then it uses that to properly date something. Now this was done um, by Padua University, the engineering department, um, by a professor, uh, Giulio Fanti, and his spectroscopic. Uh, analysis, which is available. You can go to LiveScience.com and you can read this actual study. Dated the Shroud of Turin from 280 BC to 220 AD within that range, yeah. which the bell curve would have put it directly at In the middle. time of our Lord, which would yeah. have been the 30s. Mm-hmm. Not the 1930s, the actual 30s, the 030s, which is 
So that was the big thing that people said, well, this is false. But by doing that and really looking at it and properly dating it with new techniques and not flawed data samples, that really did open back up to the door that this really is uh, a verifiable or at least it removed the doubt from that bad dating technique. Yeah, and this oh, this is over the course of several years. That's right. You know, from taking the picture and, you know, things move slow mm-hmm. scientifically through the Vatican is what I've what I've seen on some of the dinosaur right? things that they look at. Yeah. Have you guys been to the Holy Sepulcher? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah. I was there with my wife on my 10th anniversary. I love that stone, like that marble stone that you walk The anointing into. stone? Yeah, the anointing stone. Oh, and man. I took my scarf and I just wiped my yeah. scarf all over the, the oils. And it still smells like it. It's been years. Yeah, and, I was there for a Byzantine mm-hmm. right thing. And these guys were like jumping around and they got swinging the huge incensors. I yeah. mean, they it was like 10 feet long, you know, mm-hmm. and it's... And then they have and these they processions all and then they go into the, the rock. tomb. Yeah. You know, there's so like, amazing. Boom, you know, oh, it was yeah. really cool. What'd you guys feel there? <sighs> the feeling, I mean, just that's one of the most solemn places that I've ever been. Yeah. And it's, even though there's a ton of people, it feels Crazy. like it's quiet. Yeah. You know, and it's not, but it, there's like a certain sense of, you know, like silent awe and the inspiration value of being in that space is overwhelming. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever been in a place, you know, when you go into St. Peter's square and you're looking around, it's like, Oh my gosh, yeah. sensory overload. This is beautiful. And you're touched all throughout, you know, Europe with these beautiful churches and architectures that, that inspire, you know, like thoughts of, of God and his kingdom and, and the magnificence of it all. But there's nothing that communicates a greater power of solemnity and presence than right there at the tomb. Yeah. In we, the Holy Sepulchre. We, we woke up. This is a good hack for people that are going to the Holy Land, but we woke up at like four. Hack 30. the Holy Land with Ryan Dunn. Uh, I'm a, I'm big on life hacks. <laughs> you are. <laughs> so I, yeah, we, we went at like four 30 in the, the morning best time to go and it was very quiet and mm-hmm. it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that place gets crazy. Oh, it does. Crazy busy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then did you go all the way down the stairs where yeah. St. Helen discovered the cross and yeah. that little area of prayer? That's probably next to the tomb area. It's a nice little quiet corner that I love to spend time in. Yeah. And then there's ca- the rocks of Calvary. Mm-hmm. Actually, know, uh, there was a priest who heard my confession in that adoration chapel. He mm-hmm. was like, I was like, hey, man, would you mind hearing my confession? He's like, yeah, come on back. And he took me ba- in the back, you know, um, parts of the yeah, church, yeah, back yeah. parts of the church and the rectory area and the, where priests live. And then he took me all the way downstairs and showed, showed me where like this place is boarded up and nobody can go down there. But there's like a whole nother access to the tomb area that, you know, was boarded up for hundreds of years or whatever. <laughs> so the Holy Sepulcher uh, is in kind of, it's kind of rough shape. It's a very, very ancient structure. But while you were there, I'm sure you noticed that it was a little beat up. But did you also notice any maybe electromagnetic pulses coming from there? <laughs> I don't know if you're sensitive to that or not. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. The hairs of my soap opera beard were just sticking out a little bit. Like, <laughs> so the Holy Sepulcher was in need of some serious repairs. Uh, so within the last five years, there's been a big program to repair yeah, it. Yeah. Now, as part of this, they had, they actually opened the tomb. They pulled open the marble slab. That's right. For the first time in centuries. Yeah, I saw that. Now, they took this, scientists doing this restoration work, took this opportunity to take uh, all kinds of scientific readings. 
And one of them, they took electromagnetic readings, again, in line with that spectroscopic yeah. with the shroud, but they also took electromagnetic readings of the burial site, of the actual tomb. And they found all sorts of electromagnetic disturbances and variances that are just not normal. They're like, hey, Ray, we got a reading here, man. This is the, well, yeah. what's going on? Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, and we this got again, a live one. <laughs> we got a live one. <laughs> so again, this science is all available if you go out and research it. All the science in these, in these studies are there. But they found that the, um, the instruments were really just whacked out with this electromagnetic readings. And again, this is in line with the the, the the preeminent theory of the creation of the image in the shroud of the of the, of the shroud of Turin, and this is a very astounding fact. All of these um, was that it took a UV explosion of light that lasted for less than a millisecond, but was so powerful it was more powerful than any light source ever created in the history of humankind times billions. This UV light would have been somewhere around forty billion watts for one millisecond. Poof. Wow. I mean, think of your light bulb, which is maybe 40 watts, and then do that times a billion. It's a billion times lighter, but brighter I'm than a light like, bulb. I'm thinking, like, is this a physical miracle that's not, that wasn't necessarily like a physical reality? It was maybe imposed into the, you know, the. Well, I mean, if you look at it, I mean, they say that it would have taken a light source to shine for one millisecond of 40 billion watts. So I, I, you know, I think you can infer from that that it, that was the moment of the resurrection. Right. That light right. exploded so brightly that it's brighter than any light that had ever shone on this earth <sighs> by billions of times. And they and the readings that they found when they opened the the tomb, conf, or at least comport with this, that there was a very large at some point electromagnetic disturbance that would be in line with these types of UV bursts. And it's still there thousands of years later. Is that going to, is that going to be what happens when we die? Well, maybe well, when we're when, resurrected. What, yeah. The yeah, resurrection right. of the dead. I, I think yeah. it's something like that. Big the, light. You know what this is reminding me of? I would love to do a study of, in that same manner of a rock that I saw in Poland near Lichen and Lichen has like, oh, that's this, a great word. Yeah. It's Lichen. A Lichen. Lichen. But it sounds like a great cookie. There's a, there's a, the, there's a basilica there, um, of our lady of Lichen and, and it's, uh, dedicated to our lady of sorrows mm -hmm. and tradition has it that our lady appeared to in the Napoleonic, you know, war and all that stuff. Um, there was a Polish soldier wounded in the woods, begged our lady for help. And she appeared to him uh, standing on top of this rock. And he's, you know, she charged him with, um, you know, building a church and, you know, having an image painted of her. Mm -hmm. So he did. And now it's like one of the second largest churches in the, in the world. It's a magnificent structure. Wow. If you ever get a chance in Poland to go see it, it is impressive. And their organ is like mind blowing. Um, but anyway, at that rock where she was standing, her feet were in, like burnt into the stone. Cool. And you, you just get this sense of like, whoa, this is really, really powerful. Yeah, that's like the Church of the Domine Covatus in Rome, where the feet of uh, Jesus are, where Jesus appeared to Peter and said, hey, you know, Peter was skipping town and said, hey, Peter, where are you going? And Peter said, I'm leaving Rome. And Jesus said, well, he said, well, where are you going, Lord? And he's like, I'm going back to Rome to be crucified again. Mm. And Peter felt guilty and he knew that mm -hmm. he had to go back and you know, face his crucifixion. Yeah. 
It'd be interesting to see to what those electromagnetic, you know, you know, what, what, if that rock has any, has that same, has thing? that same type of, you know, signature signature. Yeah. Yeah. In the order of grace though, if, <laughs> if we were to just kind of wrap our minds around it, the resurrection would have a lot more power, I think, than maybe a few more UVs. Right. No, I don't think so because it's the same reality. It's, you know, that it, when um, it's a physical manifestation of heaven. So I don't know if there's gradation in heaven puncturing earth. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it would be that same frequency. It's, it would be, seem that would be cool to check out. It would be cool to check I'm out. I'm just thinking the All right, order. guys, let's, let's go know, get let's our wrap this show up. Let's yeah. just start going to be, uh, you know, we'll give <laughs> <UV> electroscopic <laughs> scientists. We'll be like Ghostbusters, you know, with <laughs> the backpacks and never cross never cross streams. That's that would be cool. So yeah, all of a sudden the Stay Puff Marshmallow <laughs> Man is going to be coming climbing down Hollywood uh, Boulevard here. So okay, here's another astounding fact. Right, give us an astounding let's, fact. Let's Come start. On. Let's start going through this. So I think we've gotten to the some some of the really more scientific things. Let's get into some more of the the historical things and some of the physical things. So astounding fact. Now in line with that UV burst and that uh, uh, all that type of science. The image on the Shroud of Turin is so superficial that it defies any way that you can put color on fabric. It is less than one fiber thick. It is on the very top surface, and it has no penetration into the cloth. There is no sort of substance that you can color a piece of cloth with that will react that way. It's just impossible. So it's it's not scorched. It's just there. It's not pigment. It's not paint. It's not a lot stained. like Our Lady of Guadalupe. Exactly. Exactly. exactly what I'm thinking, yeah. too. So it's not like floating, but I mean, it's less than one fiber of a hair. It's the where Our Lady of Guadalupe is like hovering over the fiber. Right. This is on the fiber imprinted, but very, very superficially. But there's no pigment. Yeah. yeah but like it's like the thickness of a cell wall. Mm-hmm. It's that thin. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. So that's an astounding fact that says, well, this cannot be a this could not have been painted on because it sinks in. And if you look at the blood on the Shroud of Trin, that actually does sink in and penetrate the fiber even all the way through, which is how a liquid or a pigment on fiber works. Mm-hmm. So that's an astounding fact. And the oils, too, that were used in, in the burial ritual and mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, the flowers that's, and all of those things. That's another astounding fact. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. That, that's also kind of steeped into the, in the fabric as well, right? Yeah. So when they were researching it, they, they take tape, right? And they, they take samples of it. And in the samples of that, they found pollen, right? And all these pollens, now this is pretty cool. These pollens are consistent with plants that would have only grown in Judea. I love it. Mm. And more than that, these were the kinds of plants that would have been used in first century Jewish burial custom, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that anointing. And it, we know from that, from the Gospels, that Jesus was anointed that way in accordance right. with Jewish customs. And that would have been flowers and oils. And they found the pollen from those plants on the Shroud of Turin. Mm. Wow. Additionally, they found pollen that would have only been from the areas of uh, Constantinople, which again, kind of follows that provenance that it would have yeah. been here. Then Constantinople, then France, and wow. then Italy. Wow. Now, here's an astounding fact that still with that, um, within that range of pollen, um, you know the the crowning of thorns, right? Mm-hmm. What do you picture when you think of it? 
the crowning itself? The actual the crown itself, the thorns themselves. I, I picture it like the the passion. Well, that's exactly what comes to mind yeah. is, is how long those yeah. thorns must have been. And I see thorns going into the brow of Christ and meditating on the wounds of, um, there's a really cool devotion that I prayed for a while and every now and then I'll break it out, but it's St. Clair's meditation on the wounds of Christ. Yeah. Have you ever prayed yeah, that? Yeah. You, you showed me that. Mm-hmm. I we love that Diego. devotion, man. That, yeah. that devotion's so powerful, but I've actually meditated on, on the wound of, of the crown and just imaging those thorns just going through his brow and, um, you know, his skin just elevated and that, and that type of pain, you know? So I, I that's what I think of. And I think of like a lot of, of, a lot of blood coming down. There's been some renditions in, in video that, you know, show just like a little bit of blood coming down. But when you think about how they had to get that on his head. Oh, and the blood, and the, 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 blood the, the skin that would is so thin down. and there's so much blood in the head that when you get a cut on your head, you know, it oh, bleeds yeah. like, yeah. bleeds like an Irishman, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. But typically when you see it depicted in our, the actual crown of thorns, it almost looks like interwoven rose Mm -hmm. vines, right? Mm -hmm. With thorns. But that, those are not the kinds of thorny plants that grew in the area. Now there was a plant called the Gundelia tornaforti, and that's what grows in the area. And it's like almost a weed, like a flowering weed. And it has these very, very long, very sharp thorns on it. And I'll, I'll put a picture of this, but this is what it looks like. Mm-hmm. I'll put a picture of this for everyone to see. Now it's called the, mm. the Gondelia Tornaforti. Now this would have been more GT for short. GT is called a GT. Yeah. So they would have taken, the theory is that they would have taken these, tied them together and made the crown out of this plant, which only oh. grows in the area around Jerusalem. It's one of those native plants. In looking at that pollen, there was a high concentration in the head and shoulder areas of the image of the Shroud of Turin that had pollen from specifically that. of this plant. Oh, that's possibly wow. one of the most impressive points that you've made so far, at least in my opinion. That's that's yeah. incredible. That re- I mean, that pollen and then, then so to what get do you the think idea. they did with that? Did they did Have they you ever made like a daisy pens? chain? And you just take like kind of like tie flowers together like with dandelions. We just kind of. Are you seriously asking me that? I am. You never did that with your <laughs> I kids. Just, I just a picked a daisy chain. Yeah, he just kind of used to do that together. when he was a teenager. Shut <laughs> your mouth. He did. He was such a mouth was a hippie. No, it's like where you kind of like weave plants together, right? He's been weaving daisies his but, whole life. But if Delacruz. you weave that together. If it's a daisy chain, right? You're, you're taking. I'm just telling. Man, listen, hear me out. Dude. Let's tell us about your I'm, daisy I'm chain, Delacroix. Come on, make a good point out of the daisy chain. So what I'm what I'm saying is, if you're if you're we, so you, you have you have these 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 arrows pretty much that are in this plant. If you weave it around, that they're you're gonna need that those air the sharper points to to tie up around the edges as you move around. So there must have been some way yeah, to if you look at the plant stick them out. If you look at the plant, you've got a stalk and then you've got the thorny area. These terries kind of wrap around the base of the stalk and then you chain them together okay. and it makes a crown. That's a different looking picture. Right well, that's there. That's, that's when a, it is more more that, supple. This that's is when more, it's more of a daisy chain. <laughs> But see what right, I'm saying? So it was, it's, yeah. it's very... According to your expertise on daisy chains, it, it's more fitting. <laughs> it's fitting. Though. Yeah, but I mean, you can see how that you could take this plant very easily and turn it into right. a ring. A right. ring. And no, no, I see that now. Yeah, I see that now. So that, I, And I, I think we should show that to the, the listeners, you know. Yeah, I'll make sure that I, I share... A, I think that's a, a very amazing thing. Uh, I, you know, to, thinking to about... meditate on yeah, that now, like you're just... 
I've thought about, you know, hail king of the Jews, you know, when for Passion Sunday, oh. and I may preach on that this year, but, um, you consider that man, like mm-hmm. that after they place this crown on Christ's head and he's bleeding and blood is getting in his eyes and he's just like that type of suffering, intense mm-hmm. suffering, intense. you know, they're mocking him and saying, hail King, like they've woven this crown. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just, it's such a striking. It's so cruel. Oh my gosh. It's so but, cruel. But, but I appreciate that. Uh, like I appreciate, I, I appreciate, Christ. you know, it's both yeah. a mocking crown, but it's also, that. yeah, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like to, you know, subject like, himself to that type of crowning in the world. Right. And like make that crown these, more precious than any golden crown absolutely. that anyone has ever worn. Yeah. I used to wear, a, you know, a lot of Italians growing up when I had the little Christ head, you know, where yeah, yeah, the yeah, crown, yeah. crown Jesus. Like that was uh, the first chain that I ever had. And Those that are like was, the ones you win at fairs and stuff. That was, that was full Guido. That was full it's Guido, like, you're getting yeah. into the, you're like getting into Guido. <laughs> you're in. Yeah. You're in. Hey, look at You're Richie. a made man. He's, he's a Guido now. Yeah, he's got the Christ head on his <laughs> chest. <laughs> All right, no, so that was my favorite, man. I, I love that image. And it is. I mean, it, it's something that is iconic mm. because it reveals the capacity of our willingness to suffer for the sake of Christ so that we can receive our crowns, you know, and and there's crowns of suffering out there, man. Yeah. And that's just absolutely fascinating, though, Shield. Thank you for that point, man. That's right. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Too. Oh, I'm just so hey, happy this to is, be this here. Is Thanks too. for bringing up daisy chains. That's too. right. Yeah. <laughs> and telling everybody how Delacrosse is a daisy chain maker. That's all right, man. Don't, don't be ashamed. He was trying to keep that private. I know. That's all right. So here's another thing. Let's move, <laughs> let's move further down the shroud, of, the shroud from the head to the eyes. So in... Um, Father, I know that you've uh, ministered to a lot of dying people. And there's some there's some physical things that happen when a body dies. And one of the things that happens is that the eyes tend not to want to stay closed. Mm-hmm. And that's just because that's the, the elasticity of the eyelid. And then once death hits in, one of the things that, according to the Jewish customs of burials, to keep the eyes closed, which was a more dignified thing, is they would weight them down with coins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So if you... Uh, if you take a look at the image of the Shroud of Turin, um, some researchers will say that there's a very clear image of coins on the eye, which would have been in accordance with the first century right. Jewish burial customs. But now, when you magnify that a lot, they are pretty confident that they can make out the exact coin that it was. And it was a coin, a Roman coin called a lepton. And a lepton was essentially like, like a nickel, right? It's not an expensive coin. Mm-hmm. But... They could even make out the the markings and compare it with actual historical samples of the lepton, and it was exactly the same as the one printed between the years 27 and 35 that bared the markings of Pontius Pilate. It was the official currency of him in the area. Mm. Now, a medieval forger would not know that, have access to leptons, or would even think to so finely and minutely put in words like, uh, in Greek, um, in Kaiser. godly trust. Yeah, so you're saying that the 14th century forgery would never be able to, you know, a forger would never be able to know that. They wouldn't know that. They wouldn't have access to that. And there's no way that they could put in a reverse negative 3D data that when it was put into a reverse would render out a Roman lepton coin with Greek writing saying uh, Tiberius Caesar. 
Mm. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. It, stuff don't do that. They stuff don't do don't that. Do that. What you talking about, Willis? That's hey, it, man. So, I mean, and and we'll put a lot of these images up, but the coins on the eyes are very, very cool. Now, let's move down a little bit further. The, I think if you look at all the images of the crucifixion, where where do you see that Jesus was crucified? Through the palms, right? Right. Now, but a lot of people are saying it's. But the palms, the, the palms don't have rip. the strength to hold up a body. It, it ripped the hand in half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to put it through these two bones here. Not there uh, either, because minutes. that would that would, a person would bleed out too quickly. At the wrist, yeah. Yeah. The Romans were magnificently cruel and a magnificently efficient at being torturing torturers. Mm-hmm. They yeah. were. And they knew because they were the experts on crucifying people. There is a physiological spot that was first really identified scientifically and marked by a, a French um, biologist named Destome. And there's a spot between maybe four or five bones called in your hand called Destome's space. It is a small gap between the small hand bones that make up here. Mm. And that is the only place in the hand that physiologically could support a body if a nail was driven through it, Destome's space. Mm. In the Shroud of Turin, that is exactly where the nail marks are. Not in the hands, not in the wrists, but in Destome's space. Mm. Was that discovered through the Turin, or was no, it, it no, was probably so discovered because it was there's, through there's biology, and yeah, they're going through and they're they're examining archaeology you know, stuff yeah. like that, just finding. But no, literally, no forger in the Middle Ages would say we're putting the wound here. They would have put it here. That's where right. That's where most so, people would put it. Right. All right. So here, let's see what else we got. The actual cloth itself. A very distinct weaving pattern. It's called a three over one herringbone pattern. And it's like a chevron. It's shaped like this. And it is consistent with the way that textiles were made in first century Judea. But not at all consistent with how textiles were made before or after, especially in Europe. It was not a weaving pattern they used. No medieval forger would have thought to go in, go back 1400 years and analyze early first century Judean textile patterns to make sure that it lined up with a three over one herringbone pattern. They just wouldn't do it. So that's, again, that that gives that historical credence to the actual customs at the time. It's kind of like an ancillary, you know, phenomenon. Yeah. Just supports, you know, there's just a lot of things that just support it. You get the pollen, you get the weaving the crochet thing <laughs> crochet daisy chaining you're like what else we got well it's <laughs> somebody crocheted this in a time where this is how they crocheted it <laughs> so one last thing i want to talk about is in april 1997 the turin cathedral caught on fire and there was a firefighter who was responding his name was mario trematore and obviously he was catholic and he's like oh no the Shroud of Turin is going to get destroyed. So he, the Shroud of Turin is kept behind bulletproof glass, three layers, metal cases. I mean, this thing is locked down. It's a box, right? You said it was a box? Yeah. So, I mean, it's very, it's locked down. And the the, the cathedral's on fire. And he went into Catholic firefighter mode. And he took out his axe and he started smashing through the glass with the axe, bulletproof glass. He was able to get through it. And in his head, he's like, I'm going to, destroy the shrouded trend. It's either going to get caught on fire or I'm going to ax my way through it. Now, 
the the actual box stuff is very heavy, right? And he said in an interview afterwards, he's like, a force in the cloth um, is the faith of millions of believers, not my own. And I knew I had to save the shroud for them. Before, I was an indifferent Catholic, but that moment changed my life. When I carried away the shroud in the silver case, it became incredibly light like a newborn child. I felt like the donkey carrying Jesus into Jerusalem. Oh, beautiful. Wow. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah. It became it became miraculously light for him, so he was able to axe through it and carry it out, a huge metal box, and he said it was like, like a baby, holding a baby. Mm. Wow, man. That's pretty cool. Yeah, what an what amazing. I points. mean, we could talk for hours and hours. Oh on yeah. It. Oh, there's this is just, just countless a, books that have been written about oh, yeah. it too, and and great research. But this is a good, you know, a good beginning introduction to the Shroud of Turin and and some amazing points that that you've shared today, Ryan. And uh, you know, to consider again, um, you know, the um, the amazing power and miraculous grace of Almighty God. And um, we thank you so much, guys, for joining us on the Catholic Talk Show. Make sure that you're subscribing to us on all of the platforms, catholictalkshow.com. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, all the platforms, and YouTube. So make sure you're giving us some love there. And if you want to support the show and become one of our patrons, you could do that at patreon.com forward slash the Catholic talk show. So we really appreciate your generosity and we thank you for journeying with us. It's fun to just dig into our faith and learn a little bit more about these relics and these traditions and especially how God has communicated through them throughout the centuries and the miraculous stories that surround them. Most certainly that last story is Mm -hmm. pretty impressive. But, uh, you know, as we as we move forward into this next week, you know, let us realize that, hey, we're going to be in our burial cloths one day as well. And, you know, reverencing that burial cloth that Jesus, the firstborn of the dead, resurrected from the tomb and then ascended into heaven, body and soul, you know, is he's preparing you for that same reality. So receive some of those electromagnetic graces that uh, that come down from heaven and, uh, you know, get get that preparation going for you. Yeah, yeah that's a good episode. Thanks, guys. Episode. Yeah, thanks. for See you next time. God bless.